1: Hi, everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm great. Anything new going on with you?
0: Well, you know, I constantly talk about being too busy and trying to slow down, and I've been really working on that. So Tuesdays, Eric's off, and that's our one day of the week that we're both off together. And we used to kind of cram it full of like, you know, household projects and this and that. And then, we still didn't really spend a lot of time together. So we've been working on like before Tuesday comes, we're like, what do we want to do? And we'll do a little bit of work, but then we make sure we have fun in there too. So last week we watched a movie called Knives Out. Were they cooking food? Because other than that, I'm not that interested. It's a murder mystery. Oh, okay. Okay. I would it's like that. It's a murder that. mystery. I thought it was like something like Ninja or something. It's It re- was really good. It has like a lot of big name stars in it. Like, Jamie Lee Curtis was in it. I don't know when it came out. It's an older movie. Maybe, like, 2017 or something. I'm not sure. Anyways, it was. we really enjoyed it. It was really, like, it took you. It was really twisty. Like, you you couldn't figure it out. So then Eric's like, well, what do you want to do on Tuesday? I said, well, let's watch another movie. Because we we've we've gone years without watching a movie. So I said, let's find another movie. So he said, well, we both really liked, like Knives Out. Let me see if there's something they recommend, like, if you like that movie. So it took us to... Murder on the Orient Express, which is an old movie, but there's a new one that came out. And I think it was 2017 as well. And uh, so we watched that yesterday and we really enjoyed it. It was actually really twisty. Eric figured it out right at the end. So he he got the gold medal. And so then there was like a follow up. They kind of led you at the end to like thinking there was going to be a follow up. And there was. And it just came out this year, actually. And it was Death on the Nile. Uh Uh-huh, because those are both Agatha Christie titles. I used to read Agatha Christie when I was young. Like, as a teenager, I read Agatha Christie. So then we watched it to follow last night. And, like, the first one I bought on Apple, like, on my Apple account for, like, $4.99. It was, like, $3.99 to rent it or $4.99 to buy it. And I was like, well, I might as well just buy it in case we want to watch it again. So anyways, if you have a rainy day or you just want to watch a good movie, those are the three movies I recommend right now. Well, that
1: sounds great. We're actually always trying to find something new to watch. And we finally figured out something we could watch. And we had to do some creative problem solving. We're watching The Last Kingdom on Netflix. Have you heard of that? It's like Vikings and Englishmen. And there's a lot of like, we're only on episode three. We haven't gotten very far. But I think Eric has watched it. That is a period of history I realized I knew nothing about. They didn't teach us anything about all that. And like, I had no idea. So I'm learning things. but. Can I tell you something funny? Chad can't hear very well. And so they're talking in like this accent of, you know, whatever. And it's also kind of dark. And there are a lot of the, the action is with their backs to you. So we watched part of one episode and he said, I can't follow it. So I was like, okay. And then I'm like, well, I like it. So the next day I, I started watching the rest of the episode and it got even better. And I was like, Chad would love this. And then I thought. Closed caption. Oh, we use closed captioning a lot at our house. Well, I was like, Chad, I think I have a solution. I'm like, Would you try to watch it with closed caption? I never would have thought of that in a million years, except Will likes to watch things with closed caption for whatever reason. Will will have one. And I'm like, Why are you watching Seinfeld with closed? He's like, I don't know, I like it. I'm like, Okay.
0: So I when I started watching Downton Abbey last summer, and I binged like all the seasons, I loved it so much. They have, you know, English accents. And I constantly was like, what they say, and I'd be rewinding. And then somebody was like, why don't you just turn on closed captioning? And it's so helpful.
1: It was. And you also know people's names better. I'm a visual learner. So it's helping me now. I'm like, oh, now I know who these people are. Now it makes more sense. So anyway, everyone, there's my life lesson tip of the day is if you're trying to watch a show that everyone likes, but you can't follow it because, I don't know, you can't hear or whatever. Their accent's weird closed captioning. And also it just helps you to understand the characters because as their names.
0: Yeah. And if they play really good music, like if you're watching a series that plays good music, a lot of times they'll put the title of the song, which I love that part of it. But also like, I don't know if you've noticed on a lot of TV shows, they'll be like people, they'll talk real soft and then other people will talk real loud. So then I'll turn the TV up so that I can hear the soft spoken people. But then Eric comes in. He's like, why do you have the TV so loud? And I'm like, because I can't hear this one character. So it helps just balance it out. You don't have to have the TV so loud. Well, anyway, it's been life changing for us. Maybe so. Maybe Will is. And I didn't know. But
1: anyhow, it's going to make a difference because I can think of another show we tried to watch one time and he couldn't follow it. Maybe we can watch that one because he doesn't like things. It's hard to find something he'll watch with me.
0: Yeah, Eric and I really have to struggle to find something we both enjoy. Well, now it's time for our weekly good news segment. And this is from Melissa. And she wrote, earlier tonight, my son and I were at the Dollar General in Southside, Alabama. I had diapers, Dr. Pepper, and an Easter sign. When I got to the checkout, I realized my mom still had my debit card from earlier today. I told the cashier that I would be right back with my card. When we got back, I sent my son inside to pay. And when he came out, he told me that the man that was behind us in line earlier had paid for all of our stuff. I never even realized anyone was in line behind us. I would just like to thank this selfless act of kindness. I've not had the greatest week, so this really means more than you know, sir. To whoever you are, I appreciate you, and I will pay it forward. You know, yesterday, I had an experience. I was with Will.
1: Um, We had to leave the house. We had our home inspection yesterday, so we had to leave, and it was the middle of the day, and Will hadn't eaten. I'm like, you want to go eat? So we went somewhere to eat, and there was a table of servicemen close to us. I'm like, I'm going to buy their lunch so the waitress came over and, and I said I would like to buy their lunch but don't tell them it was me she said too late someone's already bought their lunch and I was like oh that's great anyway so I tried I tried to buy their lunch so I was like I should have looked around and bought somebody else's lunch but <laughs> I didn't do that I didn't think about it till after I left but anyway it but there was a random act of kindness right there in front of us I wonder how many people tried to buy their lunch that yesterday. So listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life. Tell us an amazing story or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. So before we get to the life lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that makes it possible for us to bring you the podcast. And today, I want to talk about Zoe. If you listen to intermittent fasting stories, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it before. But I have been fascinated with the idea of personalized nutrition since 2017 when I write Feast Without Fear. And it really kind of like was like an aha moment when I was watching a TED talk called what is the best diet for humans by Dr. Aaron Segal. Um, And it all got started because people in the Facebook groups were always arguing about what we should be eating. (laughs) Like this one's better. This one's better. And I'm like, why? Why don't we know? It's surely something's better. But then I realized, oh, wait, no. (laughs) So Dr. Segal is a researcher and he talked about how everything we'd been told about about the glycemic index was basically a lie because we all have a personalized glycemic response that varies widely from person to person. It was really at that moment that I realized it was pointless to follow any kind of generic eating recommendations. Instead, you want to find out what's best for your body. And of course, you can do that by paying attention to how you feel. But science can tell us things that we don't know. So a lot of the most up-to-date information comes from the PREDICT studies. Dr. Tim Spector is a big part of that researcher. He's the guy who wrote the foreword for Cleanish, which of course was so excited, exciting to me since he's been one of my favorite researchers since I read his first book. It was either 2015 or 2016. He did a lot of twin studies. So he's done genetic work, but also gut microbiome. Fascinating. So the, our differences lie more so in our gut microbiome, but also in genetics. So if you think this sounds cool, you get to be part of it. If you join the ZOE program, you have the chance to learn about your unique biology and find out what foods work best for your body. You get a CGM or continuous glucose monitor. You can track how your body responds to the foods you're eating You learn how well your body clears both fat and glucose by taking part in some very special muffin experiments. Don't get excited. They're not that good. They're a challenge to eat. Sherry and I have both gone through this. And finally, you are just so lucky that you get to send in a poop sample and they will analyze your gut microbiome. And after you're done, you get a very comprehensive report and you can also use their app to craft meal combinations that work the best for you. It was really transformational for me. You know, my body doesn't clear fat or glucose well. I was privileged for that. So (laughs) it taught me a lot. If you're interested in it, go to jenstevens.com slash Zoe. There's more information there. And you can also find a promo code there for some savings on the program. And Sherry actually went through it before I did. I did the actual predict to study early on before it was available for the public. I got to eat more days of muffins. And when I did it, it was paid. I mean, I did it as a, as a paid person. Like, I started off, like, I just paid like a consumer and did it. And it wasn't later until I connected with them, you know, share it with other people because I think it's so fascinating.
0: It really is. I learned a lot. And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week, we are joined by Ellen Casey. As a young woman in the 1970s, Ellen was faced with the news that she would likely never be able to conceive a child due to a prior medical complication. But she persisted and took a previously uncharted path, becoming a mother to Colorado's first test tube baby, as it was referred to back then. She was gone on to write a memoir about her experience and is with us today to share with us a bit about her history, her experience with in vitro fertilization, and where that has led us to today. So welcome, Ellen. Hello. Thank you for having me. We are so glad
1: to have you. And we've just come up with a new question we're going to ask all of our guests. Sherry thought this would be a great thing to do. And so I'm going to ask it as a beginning. So before we actually get into your background and your story, since our podcast is called Life Lessons,
2: what is the lesson you hope to share with our listeners today? Just in brief. The lesson I hope to share is that all women undergoing Infertility now, or in the who have in the past, all talk to each other and have hope. Be positive and have hope.
1: That's a beautiful lesson. Great, and I, I love that we thought to do that, Sherry, because as a teacher, we like to set up the learning that's coming. So that works perfectly. So tell us, tell us a little bit about about your story.
2: Well, in 1979, I was married, and my husband and I were hoping to have a child right away. When it didn't work, I went to a local doctor who discovered that both of my fallopian tubes were blocked. Now, the fallopian tube is the place that the egg meets the sperm. So I was effectively completely unable to have a child. Because the
1: egg just could not come down the tube and, and go anywhere. And nothing could get through the
2: blockage. Exactly. So infertility was not even a word in 1979. And, and it was taboo to discuss miscarriage. So I'd never heard of anyone else who was having trouble having a baby. So I decided to take this into my own hands and I had to sit in the library basement. Guess why? This was before the internet.
1: I remember going to libraries like that and you had the card catalog with the paper in there and you had to pull out the drawers and you had the microfiche. Did you have microfiche
2: down there to look at on the... I had to go through medical journals on microfiche trying to locate a doctor anywhere in the world who was doing an innovative new surgery to open blocked fallopian tubes Finally, in one medical journal, I found a doctor named Dr. Victor Gomel, who was working in Vancouver at the time, and Huey and Dr. Steptoe in England, who was the man who facilitated the birth of the world's first test tube baby, were the only two doctors in the world doing this microsurgery. So my husband and I flew to Vancouver, Canada, where I had the first of nine major surgeries.
1: Would you like to share with listeners, I know it's in your book, what happened? Because I I think this is an important part of your story, like why your fallopian tubes were blocked, because it really is heartbreaking and just a testament to, I don't know, medical, I I don't want malpractice. I'm not sure what word to put in there.
2: Ignorance. Yeah, that's a good one. Or hubris, perhaps would be the best word. What happened was I wanted to protect myself from becoming pregnant, which most women do when they're young and a doctor that I went to who was very well respected said let me show you what I have i am doing an experiment with an unapproved actually that's not a word he used he should have said that no the fda had not approved the iud that he presented to me, he said that he was the one who had been chosen in the state of Colorado to use this new IUD to help young women have and not have to use the birth control pill. So I thought this was great. I thought I was helping other young women not become pregnant by being a guinea pig for this, but it never told me that it could cause an infection that would prevent me from getting pregnant, which is exactly what it did. I ended up in the hospital with a raging fever within three weeks of having that IUD.
1: And you know, the reason I wanted you to talk about that is my stepmother had a similar situation in the 80s. It was the very early 80s. And we, right here on the, the border of South Carolina and Georgia, but she had a tubal pregnancy. She had, I mean, it just so many things. And it was that same similar time period. And she was using an IUD. Was it experimental at the time? I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure if she knows, but
2: so similar. It was such a shame because I was scarred and my tubes were completely blocked. So, the first surgery I had in Vancouver was microsurgery. And I must tell you that Dr. Gomel is now known as the father of microsurgery. He's a world famous physician. But I got pregnant immediately when we got back to Colorado, and everything was great for about three weeks. When I had a a life-threatening emergency, when I did have an ectopic pregnancy, just as your mother-in-law did. There was my stepmother, but yes, exactly. And I should tell the listeners that an ectopic pregnancy means that the embryo is growing inside of the fallopian tube and will never be able to get down to the uterus to implant and become a child. And that starts to grow. And when the tube ruptures, it's a life-threatening emergency. It was in 1979 when this happened to me. It is not now. Technology, science, medical knowledge has just increased so wonderfully that now doctors can detect a tubal pregnancy before a woman knows she has it. And she can have a shot, which makes it so that 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 embryo growing will not continue growing and she won't even have to have major surgery as I did.
0: Can I tell you one of the things I loved about your book was the fact that like every so often you break down like some of the history of gynecological medicine, you know, like you explain stuff like what is a tubal pregnancy? And so it's not just your journey, but it's also an education piece. Like you really educate your readers about... That's because you're a teacher. It absolutely made me think of reading like one of your books, Jen, when I was reading through her book. I was like, yep, that's the teacher in her. And it's so
2: helpful. It's updated for today's reader so that it is more than just my personal experience. And I meticulously researched it using primary sources so that I could explain correctly what every term that I used was and how modern medicine has improved to treat many of the situations that I experienced. The lesson I think that
0: we can take away from your experience with the IUD, and I believe that in this day and age, people are much more empowered to do this, is to ask more questions and become more educated before they make medical decisions where, I mean, Back in the 70s, where would you have turned to find out, is this IUD safe, right? You just had to trust your doctor. And you couldn't talk to
1: other people from across the country like we can now. You can search. You can go to groups. You can find people virtually. We, we have so much more connection now with people
2: from all over. So that resulted in an emergency surgery. Then I stayed in bed for a few days feeling absolutely devastated. I had been so positive that this experimental microsurgery would work that then I realized I was in the fight of my life because all I ever wanted was to be a mom. I love children and that's what I wanted. So I went back to that basement, (laughs) the library basement, and started searching for newer techniques. And sure enough, I located a doctor who was a scientific surgeon. He was incredible. He was the first man in the world doing laser surgery to open fallopian tubes. And somehow or other, I got myself into him in Hartford, Connecticut. So we went there, and he did a surgery that, again, was successful, opening the one fallopian tube I had left. I got back to Colorado Springs and within two months had a terrible infection that we don't know what caused it, but it was clearly something to do with the surgery and another emergency where I was near death and ended up in the hospital. And then I was in a terrible situation because now I had neither fallopian tube existed and that stopped me completely from being able to conceive. So then next... I was doing every alternative method I could think of for us to be able to have a child. We were on the adoption list with Lutheran charities as well as Catholic social services. We went to the very first surrogate parenting associates meeting, which was in Nashville, Tennessee, My friends were all trying to help me, and they weren't working. I was teaching. They weren't working, and they were at home watching the Phil Donahue show.
1: I loved that show. I loved it.
2: You know, that's really where we got a lot of our information about what was going on (laughs) medically. And the first surrogate in the U.S. was on the show with the man who started this company and the parents who were waiting for their baby to be carried by her. So, of course, my friends told me about it. And I sent away my, you know, $1 check to get the transcript of the program. And I immediately called and registered my husband and me. And we were on our way to a trip in the Caribbean and stopped in Tennessee to go to the surrogate parenting associates. So we tried everything. Every possibility. I went to a home for unwed mothers in Colorado Springs and I took them all new linens and just, you know, once sat and chatted with them for a while and told them how much I was hoping for a baby. And I tried every possible way to get a child.
0: Your persistence just really, I mean, like like that's what I kept as I was reading your book. I was like, gosh, she was so persistent. You just never took no for an answer. Like every time you had an obstacle, you were like, okay, how do I overcome this
2: obstacle? Exactly. Because I had a goal. I had a goal. And I think that the way this all worked out was actually meant to be because when I did become the mother of one of the world's first test two babies, then I was able to share my story with the world, with especially the women in the United States.
1: It makes me wonder how many women were in that same situation since, you know, I know of you and also then I I think my stepmother was, like I said, affected by the same thing. Probably there were a lot.
2: You bet there were, but they weren't talking about it with each other. It was taboo. It was really in violation of all social mores. No one ever asked how I was. No one commented. It was a very strange time. So then, in of course, I knew about Louise Brown, the world's first test tube baby, who had been born in 1978 in England. Uh, that birth was facilitated by the famous Dr. Steptoe and Dr. Edwards. But we never thought there'd be another test tube baby. No one in the world ever thought that. We just thought it was an anomaly. And then in 1981, in Eastern Virginia Medical School, Elizabeth Carr, the first test tube baby born in the United States, was born. And the minute she was born, I knew I would have a baby. I absolutely knew it. And uh, of course, there was no way for me to get in touch with her mother, to talk to her. So what I did was I sat right down at my typewriter. Again, remember, this was pre-internet. So I typed a letter and I received a letter back saying that they had had something like 40,000 people. Send letters. So there were so many women across the United States desperately trying to have their own child. And this was their only option. So they put me on the waiting list and I have that letter. I st- saved the letter. Um, they put me on the waiting list and, but you had to be under 34 to have them do the procedure. And at that time I was, Oh, I think I was 31 and I would have been too old by the time I got to the top of the list. However, I knew then that other in vitro programs would open in the United States. And my darling doctor, Dr. John Smith in Colorado Springs, had, who had done the emergency surgeries on me over and over and over and watched me fly around the country and the world trying to go to doctors for help, called me to his office one day and said, I have news. They have approved a second IVF program to operate in the United States in Houston, Texas, at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center. He handed me a hand-addressed manila folder with all of my medical records in it. He had called Dr. Martin Quigley, who founded the second IVF program, told him about me, and he said, all they need is your marriage license. And he said, go Xerox it and pop it in this envelope and mail it. They're expecting it. And that is how I was one of the first women in the world to go through IVF in the U.S. So your doctor, I mean,
0: he really helped facilitate it, but it's really a credit to your persistence. Had he not known how persistent you were and how badly you wanted this, you would have just been another patient to him. You were the squeaky wheel. Yes, I was
1: squeaky, and but cheerfully squeaky, because I already know that just from spending this time with you so far. You were not going to take no for an answer, but pleasant, in a pleasant way. <laughs> you catch more flies with honey, right? There's that whole... So at the time, this was just like science fiction
2: almost, right? It was definitely thought of as science fiction. There was a fierce... Moral, ethical, and religious backlash against test tube babies, which is what my baby was called. As I said, the term IVF had not been coined yet. The Pope came out and said it was a sin against God to conceive a child this way. It was absolutely thought of terribly as something that was like the book 1984. Well, I took that opportunity to speak to the public. And I luckily had a platform as being one of the first moms to have a child. So I, even though the stigma was so bad, I went right on television and I spoke about having my daughter. I made my personal struggle, my personal loss and agony public for one reason and that re- reason reason was to help other women i wanted them to know that this in vitro worked and it was already operating in the united states so that they too knew they had a chance to build their family and have a baby of their own
1: see and i think that's huge that that really shows what a pioneer that you that you were because you were willing to talk about it in a time that you were getting backlash from, I mean, the Pope, hello. The Pope's decree said it was morally illicit. Oh my gosh, has he changed it? Well, the, the, the current Pope? Have they changed
2: their stance on that, I would hope? I don't know the answer to that. However, I will tell you that when the Pope came out with this decree, my daughter was then three years old and I didn't even know what had happened until the phone rang and it was a television station saying, we need you to come down right now and talk about what you think about this Pope's decree. And I thought, oh. So I went right down and they immediately said to me, are you saying the Pope is wrong? But I was prepared. And I said, oh no, I'm saying the Pope is misguided. He doesn't know the love between a man and a woman and their desire to have their own child. I love it. That's what I was thinking the
0: whole time. I was like, what greater love could there be between a man and a woman that goes to these through these
2: steps To create life. And you know, the book begins with a television talk show I was on about six months after I had my daughter, and it was in Boston. And I was on with a doctor from Harvard, a doctor from Brigham and Women's, and a bioethics attorney whose name is Lori Andrews, who wrote a book called New Conceptions. And my husband and I were the chapter about in vitro fertilization in her book. So the talk show host briefed us and she said, now, doctor from Harvard, I'm going to ask you to explain what in vitro fertilization is. And other doctor, I'm going to ask you this. And then lawyer, I'm going to ask you the legalities. And then she said, with a flip of her hand, oh, and Ellen, will just show pictures of your baby and you can tell about her. And I thought, okay. It went live. And this woman put her face into mine and said, wouldn't you say you are playing God?
1: I just can't even believe her nerve there.
2: Like you, Ellen, you're playing God. Yes. That's what she said. It was me. And I could see out of my peripheral vision, the two doctors and the attorney on the panel with me, sit absolutely motionless. They were horrified. And I just smiled and said, oh no, I thank God for these gifted doctors, for these gifted scientists who have made it possible for us to have our own child. And they said, this is no more than a heart bypass. This is a bypass of the fallopian tube.
1: That's a great way of putting it. Because you know we're not just leaving people who need a heart bypass to die because of you know surgery is going against God's will. No, that was that's a fantastic analogy. I see. I'd be in the emotional place. I would be like not thinking of good comebacks and <laughs> like no, and I'm gonna punch you. No, I
2: wouldn't really do that. But Believe me, it did go through my mind. However, I had a mission, and my mission was to help other women. I had been given such a gift, and I wanted to share it with them in a positive way. I didn't want to come across as being negative at all. And I never have.
0: Wow. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, you have so much emotion tied into the whole process. And then to, I mean, like I would have felt attacked personally. So, I definitely would have come out with some claws, I think
2: no, you wouldn't have because you would I knew I had a bigger purpose, and I did, and it was something I felt so strongly about in fact, as soon as I became pregnant, and again, I did not know if there were any other women in the u s pregnant with an in vitro baby other than mine. I just knew about the one who had been born. So I immediately called my doctor in Houston and said, I will speak to anyone to whom you want me to speak. I will speak to the press. I will speak to other patients. Just let me know who I, how I can help you. Let people know that they have a chance to build their own family thanks to this amazing new technology.
0: I love that. You were given a gift and you paid it forward in so many ways. So when they did the in vitro, did you have a chance of having like twins or triplets? Did they implant multiple embryos? I think I read that you had five embryos.
2: At that time, they really had no statistics. There were only two, perhaps three babies that, who had been born in the world. And so, yes, at, they said to me that the, at that point, they felt that the optimal number of a, embryos to transfer back into the mother's womb was five which is what I had. And then I went up to Denver to a highly sophisticated ultrasound physician and facility where they saw that there was just one that had implanted. I was a little disappointed. Now, not that I wanted five, but I would have taken them. And of course, now you know it's different. Now they do not implant, uh, pardon me, transfer more embryos because they don't want multiple births, as that is a danger to both the babies and the mother.
0: Okay. So they really only do implant one at a time now? It depends on the program. I believe two is what they'd like to do. I didn't know that. I I mean, I thought there was always
2: a risk of multiple births when you did in vitro. If it's only two, then it's, it's not a risk. Then it's luck. It's a double blessing. So, you told your daughter about it. She's known from from the beginning from birth. Yes, I always talked to her about it, And she thought it was funny that her friends just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And in my book, I have a couple of quotes from her through the years. When she was five, I was going to my obstetrician and they took her along so that he could say hello to her. And she goes, "Mommy, I can't remember. Is this the doctor who took me out or the doctor who put me in?" <laughs>
1: I was sharing before we started recording, you know, I was a, a teacher for 28 years and I had a third grader. This is in in the early 2000s, maybe 2002. So she was a third grader. So you you can do the math backwards and see. But she loved to tell the class that she was a test tube baby and that wording was still, she was using that wording still. And it was not common still even then at that point to hear hear that. And I can remember I taught a lesson. We We did life cycles in third grade, like the life cycle of a chicken and the life cycle. And we had to talk about that. And uh, we were watching a Bill Nye video. I don't know if you've ever watched Bill Nye, but it was Bill Nye the Science Guy. And they were at some zoo and they were trying to breed an endangered animal. They, they were doing in vitro fertilization of this this animal in the zoo. And it was a surgery and they were showing the surgery. And so then Katie's like, that's like what happened to me. Then one of the little girls, she looked so puzzled, another little girl in the class, and she was looking and I just, I'm like, okay, well, what, what is your question? She's like, but is there a way for it to happen naturally? Because she was smart enough to realize that. And I'm like, go home and ask your mama. Because in third grade, it's really hard to teach life cycles with a lot, with a, add a little bit of that kind of stuff coming up. You know, the kids say things that are hilarious, but... She was like, it's got to happen naturally. I'm like, yeah, it does. But (laughs) thank goodness it happens the other way too.
0: So did you, after you were successfully implanted in Houston, did you have to go back to Houston for any type of follow-up or you were just
2: done at that point and you had all your follow-up in Colorado? I was finished in Houston and they did do ultrasound measurements of the baby's head as she was progressing month by month. And apparently they still weren't sure if these children would turn out normal. That is why they did that. It was, I mean, I was really at the beginning of assisted reproduction technology. And one of the reasons I wrote my book, Unstoppable, is because I realize this is a primary source. What I went through is completely different now than what young women are going through now who are, are undergoing infertility treatment. I wanted everyone to know, and they'll be shocked to know that they thought perhaps the children wouldn't be born normally. It was a gamble because you just didn't know. I knew. I was positive. She was fine. Of course I did. So were you blessed with an easy pregnancy after all of this? Easiest pregnancy ever. My husband called me the walking smile. I couldn't stop smiling. I was so happy. And I had my baby within three hours from the very first cramp. I think I deserved it. <laughs>
0: I was going to say, I think you went through enough to, to get to that point that you deserved an easy
2: delivery. So your daughter is how old now? She's 38. And she has her own baby. She has a baby boy. And she got pregnant the first month they tried. And she called me and she goes, Mom, you're vindicated. I was that person, too. I got pregnant the
1: first month trying both times. So I, the hearing about, well, it was a gift, I appreciate that. And it was a blessing.
2: I think about young women today, and I feel that it's so important. They know the stories of the women who have gone before them in life and opened the doors that they can just walk right through now without thinking. And no judgment. Yes, no judgment. One of the moms, darling young mom who was pregnant with twins, whose daughter was in my kindergarten class, said, oh, these twins are in vitro twins. We just decided to do in vitro so we didn't have to wait to get pregnant naturally. And I remember looking at her and thinking, oh, if you only knew. You have it as an option. And in 1982, when I became pregnant, it was not an option. No, I never even would have thought of that, ever. Ever. Did that sting just a little bit or were you like, yay? Or did you, like, did you feel good? I got a kick out of it. And do you know that I have gotten thank you notes from some of my daughter's friends thanking me for being a pioneer in in vitro fertilization so that they too have IVF babies. And then I'll tell you one thing that came, this is so cool. I sent my book to the nurse who's written about in the in vitro program, Sylvia Pace Owens. You'll probably remember her name from the book. I sent her a copy of my book and signed it. She wrote me a thank you note, not only for the book, but for being brave enough to try the second IVF program to operate in the United States. Talk about full circle, right? That was really brave, you know, especially since
1: you had like been burned once by the medical industry with something new, and you were still willing to do something
2: that was experimental and you you just embraced it. Cutting edge. I looked at it as an absolute fantastic option that I had. And you know, I'll tell you too that writing this book there has been a very spiritual component to it. I had to write and call each of the physicians whose names I use in the book for legal reasons to get a a legal release from them. So I have connected now 38 years since I had my baby with all of my doctors. And it is the most amazing full circle moment. They are delighted with what I've written. And all of us looking back from the viewpoint of so many years, realize the difference that we all as a team made in the world. It was it was really a privilege for me to be involved at a unique and special time.
0: You know, and I was just thinking too, so I've been in healthcare for 20, it'll be 28 years in June. You don't notice the change in technology and in the way we do things like on a day-to-day basis, Right. But if I step back and I think back to the early days of my career, it's so different. There have been so many changes that you're like, oh, wow, like I can't believe how much this has evolved or whatever, you know, and you can be you just see it differently. Like every day you don't see it. But when you really step back and you look and you can see how far we've come with technology and treatments and, you know, it's just mind blowing. And to think that you were the first step on that rung, you know, for in vitro, that's just mind-blowing to me. I don't know.
2: You know, it is. It really is. It's, it's been just fun to talk to all of these people because we realize, and of course, I'm able to talk to the most famous doctors in the world because I went to three of them. And, you know, we were all working together for the same goal for families, families, to exist for parents to be able to have the children whom they so desperately want. At the time I went through in vitro and microsurgery and laser surgery, there was a very small group of researchers and experimental surgeons, and they were all consulting with each other. When I was in Texas undergoing in vitro, my doctor was on the phone talking to Dr. Steptoe in England about the culture the the makeup of the culture that they used in which to put the embryos. They were all in touch with each other by telephone, of course, because there was no texting.
1: That's how the research thing, they had their community of researchers
2: that that were doing it. They were pioneering it together. It's just been a wonderful, almost a karmic moment to be able for all of us to be in touch. And they are really tickled about my book. And so I'm so pleased I was able to write so glowingly about each and every one of the doctors and nurses who helped me. May be a pioneer and be able to make a difference in the life of not just my family, but all the women in the United States. Let me ask you this. When you were on the different
0: TV shows and you were talking about the in vitro and how you got there and whatever, did you talk about your, like your tubal pregnancy and that sort of thing? Were you allowed to talk about that? Did you bring up that part of the journey? I mean, right there alone, you took something that was a hush-hush t- topic And you were bringing it out into the public and talking about it. I mean, that right there is huge because now today, you know, people have rainbow babies and they talk about their miscarriages and they support each other that, I mean, that's so we've come so far and we couldn't have done it without people
2: like you talking about it. I was surprised by the mothers who had in vitro babies early, early as I did, who did not want anyone to know about it. And One thing I've learned is people are really different. We're so much alike, but we are so different. And some people were very private. Some felt there would be a stigma. I was going to say, do you think it's shame or fear or
0: what kept people from celebrating it? I think both. Well, I mean, first of all, the Pope just said it was
1: like a sin. I mean, especially if you're like, no, I can't do that. People will judge me. I can't be. I mean, just imagine how that would feel
2: in those days. And IVF was perceived at that time as the beginning of a terrifying alien new world of science fiction. And there were, people thought babies were growing in bottles. I'll tell you a quick story. I was at the grocery store and I was already educating people and I was about nine months pregnant. And person next to me in lines was asking if this was my first baby. And I said, oh yes, this is a test tube baby. And this sweet lady looked at me and said, oh, Oh, wonderful. Where is the baby growing? Hello, look at the belly. <laughs> I had to help educate the public and also I also had the goal that my daughter never be looked at as an, a strange child. What does she think about it? Like growing
0: up, was she proud?
2: Yes. You know, it's just been her life. Her her first appearance on television was at one day old when the TV cameras came into my hospital room. And the press has come to her birthday every year. And now they do it every 10 years. Every 10 years, they always call me and want to do an interview with me and with her. So when she was 10, I gave her a pioneer-themed birthday party. And when she was one, I got a phone call. Saying the day before her birthday, saying, Hello, this is, you know, such and such a television station in Denver, Colorado. Where can we land our helicopter? Oh, on on the helipad. (laughs) And I said, Your helicopter? Well, and they said, Why are you landing a helicopter? And they said, We're coming to your daughter's birthday party. And I thought, Oh boy. And then I had to make the choice as to whether or not to tell my friends who were coming to that birthday party with their little ones. And you know what? I chose not to tell them because I was afraid they wouldn't come. Well, of course, the opposite happened. And they all said, why didn't you tell us we were to put on makeup? <laughs> well, tell our listeners how they can find your book
0: and uh, whatever. And then I'll share it in show notes. So with anybody listening, if you go to show notes, uh, you'll be able to click on a link and get to her book. But go
2: ahead and tell us, too, where where we can find that. Thank you so much. The title of my book is Unstoppable, Forging the Path to Motherhood in the Early Days of IVF by Ellen Weir Casey. And you can find that on Amazon.com, on BarnesandNoble.com, and you can order it from independent bookstores. And I should tell you that... Thousands of women in the United States and in the world are still living in a grim cloud of anguish at their failure to become pregnant or to maintain a pregnancy, so that my years of grief following multiple losses echo their own stories. This book is relevant across the generations. Women who remember the 1970s and 1980s will certainly relate to it. And young women today who are struggling with infertility or who have friends who are will also be amazed. I I take the reader into the mind and the heart of a young woman undergoing infertility, loss, But I have a happy ending, and I want every young woman to also have a happy ending. And it's really well written. Like, I I enjoyed it.
1: I enjoyed reading it. So everybody find that book and read Ellen's story. It's very inspiring. And again, you've heard her tell it today, but reading the book is also something you would enjoy.
2: Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed this so very much.
0: Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, we want to take a minute to invite you to the Life Lessons VIP community on Circle. Not only can you interact with Jen and me in a private online community, you can connect with other listeners and community members. Uh, we'll be hosting monthly Zoom hangouts where we can all connect and talk. Uh, we did that in April. We're getting ready to set up this month. It was a lot of fun just to... Uh, you know, talk to other people face to face. We had some great conversations learned about each other and our communities that we live in. So if you want to join us in the VIP community, go to lifelessonscommunity.com VIP. There you will choose your monthly membership contribution of $4.99 or $9.99 a month. And you can manage that subscription within the platform and make any changes at any time. We want you to choose the option that feels like the right value to you. If you truly get value from the podcast each week and you enjoy listening and hanging out with us, we would hope that you'd be willing to choose a higher package to help support the work we do on the podcast and the costs associated with it. And we are at the point now we're just
1: over three episodes fully funded by the VIP community per month, three episodes per month. So we're we're getting closer to our goal of having all of our episodes funded by the VIP community to the point that we don't have to worry about production costs anymore.
0: I also want to say really quick, like, I know I've mentioned this before. This is a community-involved website. And I really, really love it when you guys take the time to email me or use our form to send us your good news story contributions and your listener-led lessons and your quotes. Those are some of my favorite parts of each episode. I love sharing what the community has, you know, to share with each other and putting those little messages out there. So please, please, please email me at connect at com if you have any contributions to share. And under the uh, topic, just put quote or life lesson or whatever so I know what it is. And um, then I will share them on upcoming episodes of this podcast.
1: Yep. We need them. We love them. And if you think yours is, you're like, oh, mine's not important enough to share, share it anyway.
0: It is. It
1: really is. All right. So now it's time for our listener-led lesson. And thank goodness we have one from Sue. She says, here's my recommendation for when you're feeling down in the dumps, sing out loud. When you sing, you breathe deeply, which gives your body more oxygen, much like exercise. Singing aloud also releases endorphins which give you that same feel-good boost that you get from exercise. There are many studies about the positive effects of singing aloud, and I have found that I can shift my mood by singing aloud even if I don't feel like it. The mechanics of it have an effect on my body, and soon I feel better. I love that. I've never thought about that before. Yeah. Well, I turn on music and dance and sing along. That's what I do. You know that about me. You get the song and the exercise. I do. I love to sing
0: and dance. It makes me feel so much better. Sue is right. Thank you, Sue. At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener, and today's quote comes from a fan in Canada. The quote is, the individual has always had to struggle to keep from being overwhelmed by the tribe. If you try it, you will be lonely often and sometimes frightened but no price is too high to pay for the privilege of owning yourself. And that is from Frederick Nietzsche. She shares, recently at a family dinner, my sister and niece were making fun of me for some of my alternative health devices I use. They think my vibration plate is silly, and they particularly laughed about my red light therapy before bed. It helps me sleep, and I love it. I guess I've always been the one in my family with ideas that are outside the norm, and periodically that makes me fodder for mockery. I didn't argue with them, and I let the comments blow by. But by the next day, when I was looking for a bullet journal quote, I found the quote from Nietzsche that spoke to my soul in the moment. I will own myself. I will not be ashamed of the choices I make for my body, mind, and spirit, no matter what people think of me. I am not obligated to conform to fit myself into the person you think I should be. I will continue to seek out whatever enriches my life, nor will I be furtive and silent about my choices. I will include in my life what serves me well, and I will talk about it if I want to. This is my life, and I will live it fully with joy. Amen. Amen is right. So, everybody, think about that
1: when you're like joking around at your family events because it doesn't feel good to be the person that's being joked about. It really doesn't. You may think it's like just the playful way your family talks to one another, it really hurts. You know, I've gotten those comments about fasting. <laughs> I don't get them anywhere except at the family, right? Like well, one time, I won't say who it was, but a family member told me I was – So I didn't want to go somewhere at a, a meeting that was at a certain time of night. I'm like, well, that's when I cook dinner for my family and we eat together. And this family member said, oh, you're just – this is obsessive. This is obsessive the way you – and I'm like, no, it's family dinner. I mean, yeah, that's my, my meal of the day, but that's when we eat together as a family. I, I don't think that's obsessive. That's my boundary. I'm not going anywhere during the dinner hour, not because I like am this crazy intermittent faster, but anyway, that was how it was spun to me. And it really hurt my feelings.
0: Well, basically you said my dinner is a priority over your event and they didn't like that. I don't go to things unless they're really special things if they are going to interfere with my family dinner.
1: It's very rare that I'm going to something at dinner time. Unless it's another dinner, I'll go to dinner. This was
0: a club meeting that had no dinner. I wasn't gonna like do that. I well, why not do that? anyway, I don't know. So
1: everybody knock it off.
0: Yeah. Feel empowered to make your own choices and realize that other people are free to make their own choices. If they're not hurting you, let them be. You know,
1: it really is hurtful to be the person that's getting
0: teased for being different in the family. It's not funny. It's
1: not you know, the way your family always is. That's break that right now. Stop it. Anyway, that's my my teacher voice right there. So everybody, thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to join us in the new Life Lessons VIP community. Go to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP to be a VIP podcast supporter for either $4.99 or $9.99 per month. And your support ensures that we can keep bringing you episodes of the Life Lessons podcast each week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we would love for you to leave a review on iTunes or Spotify that helps us reach others. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener led lesson or a motivational quote that means something to you? Or do you have an area of expertise that you want to share as our featured guest for the week as we present our weekly life lesson? Make sure to email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com and then listen each week to see if we share your story or tip. Until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.